Welcome to Jolty, a podcast to help you lift your perspective above this jolty moment and focus on the ultimate direction of our business and personal lives. Hi, I'm Maggie Wilkinson, CEO of Athena Global Advisors, and I'm excited to reconnect with longtime friends and amazing futurists, Faith Popcorn and Adam Hampt, as we talk to Dr. Joel Weinberger about the unconscious mind. So with that, let's jolt. Dr. Joel Weinberger, just a bit of background on him first. He's an, he's an old friend of mine. We've worked together on many consumer projects where his insights were invaluable. He's a professor at Adelphi in psychology, and he is a terrific analysis of the unconscious mind, unconscious processes. That's his area of specialization. Why we do what we do without realizing what we do, there could be no better time to have him on. So with that, hello, Joel. Hi, Joel. How are you, Faith? And then we have Maggie here, Maggie Wilkinson. She's CEO of Athena Global, and you know Adam. Can we talk about sex? Thank you, Faith, for that transition. Thank you. It's a little hard transition, but it's always interesting to be here. Well executed. Thank you. So let's go down the list. Let's see what other questions we have for Joel. Okay. So The the, the, um, infidelity pill? Okay, you asked that. So let's say there was, let's say after Pfizer finished the vaccine, their brilliant scientists decided to work on something else, and that would be an infidelity pill. So if you could get your significant other to take it, they, they, you, you could do whatever you wanted, and there would be absolutely no consequences. So that was a Black Mirror episode, I think. I think it might have been. But you, do you think people would act in a different way? This gets back to last week. They knew there were no consequences. Yeah. You're, you're asking, would people be unfaithful if they could get away with it and knew they could get away with it? Is that yeah. what the question right. is? Sure. Well, we used to call a business trip. <laughs> <laughs> In my field, we call it a conference. But, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I, I, I have to think about that. Let me, let me give you up to time. I, I think there's certain people that just would not do that. And there are certain people that do it anyway. So obviously they'd be happy with that pill because now they and don't. What about have... the other people, the middle people? Yeah, the middle yeah. people is what I'm wondering about. The suggestion <laughs> is what prevents them is fear. And if you take away the fear, they're going to do it. You know, there, there's a, a, a theory of evolution says there's two ways to propagate your genes. One is you make sure that your offspring grow up healthy and stay alive which means you have to be around, which means you have to nurture them, or you just spread your genes all over the head, the the damn place, and you have a bunch of offspring and some of them will survive. So these are two reproductive strategies. And apparently, if you believe the theory, they're they're, um, mixed in our population. I, I wouldn't call it randomly, but genetically they're there. And some people are built to have a bunch of kids all over the place. And other people are, are built to, uh, to watch their offspring. I remember where I grew up. I grew, I grew up in the, in the South Bronx. And I remember one kid telling me there what a great father he had because on Christmas, he visited all of his children no matter where they lived. <laughs> I remember I was, I don't know, about 12 or 13. I thought, that, that, what do you, that doesn't Brooklyn seem right to me. Or in Brooklyn? So yeah, no, he he was traveling all over the country the way I I remember it. Like he was just bragging, Joel. Yeah, but uh, I don't think I would brag about my father that way. No, his father was just bragging to his son. To his son, yeah, mine is bigger than yours. Maybe and more far flung. 
But you know, the son took it as a wonderful quality of his father that oh he didn't forget any of his children, no matter where they were, he showed up on Christmas to visit them all. Your repression and denial. It's uh, it's bizarro and bizarro. It's sort of like Will Chamberlain versus Dr. Spock. I get it, but, <laughs> but the question becomes, what happens to the children when the father is gone and they're un they're less likely to succeed unless the tribe takes care of them. Well, there, there's that, and it's what in this particular case, what happens to the children when it's not Christmas? Right. It's not there the other 364 days. So the idea is if I produce enough of them, some will make it to adulthood, and that's all I need. It's kind of like the insect logic. I'll just produce yeah, innumerable God. children. Some will survive, some will not, but my genes will be propagated. And I don't really care about the individuals. I only care about my, my genetic legacy, so to speak. Maggie, you had a question, right? Yeah, I, I think that was true for Charles Lindbergh. Didn't he have many, many, many children? Is that right? Yeah, all over the world. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's why, he, that's why he had to learn to fly. So I was wondering, you know, I was reading this article about, let me get this right, OSO, Other Significant Others, which is a community, not, not particularly about sex, but you know how your spouse or your significant other can't fulfill everything. They yeah. either find your business boring or they find you boring or they don't like to eat fish or some horrible thing. And if you live in a community with OSOs, you will find people in the community, friends that you can go for a walk with. My spouse or my other hates to walk or, you know, will hold my baby in the right way or whatever. I think it's a, well, you could also call it a kibbutz. I don't know. I think it's a wonderful theory. I'm just in love with it. And I want to know what you think, Jill. Well, there is a, a problem with that. Uh, first of all, on uh -oh. paper, it sounds good. Uh -oh. The problem is this, that emotional infidelity is thought of by a lot of people as worse than physical infidelity. Really? So friends, yes. Uh, I've asked my class this question because there was a research, turns out to be wrong, about 20, 25 years ago that, that argued that men dislike physical infidelity more than they dislike emotional infidelity and women are the other way around. And the logic was the man never knows whose child it is and the woman needs the support to bring up the child. So therefore, they're worried that the man will spend the time with the other uh, person and the man is worried that he's bringing up genes that are not his. And for a while, they'd raise, the men would raise their hands of physical and the women would raise their hands emotional. Now everyone raises their hands emotional, the men and the women. Really? It changed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so that, was that, I think it was Shirley Glass who did a lot of the work you're talking about with emotional infidelity. Mm -hmm. well, well, would that bother you so much if, if your wife had a bestie? Suppose it was the same sex bestie. That wouldn't bother you. It depends if I'm not getting the attention that, that I want to get when well, I want to get it. Is it ever enough for you, Joel? I mean, really. No, not here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite the bottomless pit, but um, oh, okay. maybe so. I, when I was in grad school, I remember, that, apropos of what you're saying, I became friendly with a, a married woman in grad school, and we were just friends. That was it. And I remember her, she said her husband told her she, she'd want to talk to him about something. He'd say, talk to Joel. Joel will talk to you about that. Yeah. I don't want to talk about that. It's like and always I, I remember thinking at the time, I don't think this is good for you. No, but, but you uh, worried that the husband thought of you as asexual then? Yeah, I think he thought of me as emasculated because I was a psychologist. And yes, like you were no threat. He wouldn't have said that if it was Clint Eastwood. You know, I don't think it's about sex. I do think it's about people 
falling in love with their friends, not sexually really loving their friends can cause some jealousy, but like, that's why I love other significant others. Why can't you fall in love with your friend? You can. I'm just saying that people can find it threatening. Your my wife's intimacy, emotional intimacy ought to be first and foremost with me. And she feels the same way the other way. I don't know if it needs to be a competition. To me, if the emotional availability to the OSO is so dramatically deeper than the personal connection with the spouse, it becomes a problem. Yeah. But if if she generally or he's generally emotionally available and it's not that striking of a difference, I don't think it's a problem. But you know what? There are certain things that you're so not interested in, let's say, that if your other finds another that is really interested in that thing, aren't you relieved? In the, well, I, I'm not worried about my wife straying particularly, so I think I would be relieved, and she does have friends of that sort, but the, the literature says that emotional infidelity is a big worry to people, so there's a line. The slippery slope. Yes, what happens when she's in distress? Who's she gonna call? She the gonna one that's up. better at comforting her. Well, I'm thinking though some marriages that maybe wouldn't make it with other significant others could that it could compensate in a way that the the union the union survives because you found other ways to get some of your needs met. The spouse has to meet some emotional right. need other than the physical need. Back to the pandemic, right? So and divorce, because a lot of these relationships that flourished before through lunches and cocktails and other conference coffees couldn't happen. Right. What are you hearing in your clinical practice about sort of the shutdown of those interpersonal relationships and the redound effect on the, on the marriage relationship? Well, we know that divorces are up and uh, spousal abuse is up. I think it's breaking down uh, according to introversion and extroversion. I'm, believe it or not, more of an introvert than an extrovert. Uh, and my wife is an extrovert. And she says, you don't care. You're home alone. You're working on your computer. You see your patients, you're writing your books. It doesn't bother you. And I say, not now, I'm working on my book. No, I say, uh, <laughs> she's right. It bothers her more than it bothers me. She's out now taking a walk with friends. I go for a walk either with her or by myself. Maybe she has a, a significant other out there. I don't yes, know. Yes, an OSO. So I, I think it breaks down by personality. I think it actually does bother me less than it bothers some other people because I'm introverted. So, so there's no one around. I don't care. But also you have a long, you know, successful marriage, I'm assuming, that yeah. doesn't bother you. You're not, well, I'm not worried about losing my wife, if that's Why what Why aren't you worried, Jill? You know, it's, a, it's actually a good question because I have had relationships where women were unfaithful to me and I, I'm just not built to be jealous. I just believe in people. Maybe I'm stupid, but uh, that's how I'm built. And so, so you, far, you were never worried even about the unfaithful ones, right? Well, once they were unfaithful, I became worried, but it didn't you, last much longer. When you found out. Yeah, when I found out, but I, I didn't. And then when I got into my next relationship, I wasn't worried. It wasn't like the last one was this way, so I'm wondering about you. It just didn't carry over. Whereas some people are just natural born jealous people, I think. Where does suspicion cross into jealousy? That's a Hitchcock question. I always think I actually call it Weinberger's law because it works every time. If someone accuses you of something and it never occurred to you, they're doing it. Yeah. I'm 100% convinced yeah. that that holds. That's a dead so, giveaway. So my, my college girlfriend was, was unfaithful to me and she was jealous as crazy about me. 
in HR, they when they interview somebody, they present a scenario and they say, what's happening? And if the person says, oh, that person stole the paper clips, then, you know. That's it. So I, I, had, a, I had a research grant at one time and the, you have to work the government money and so on and so forth. And it was a break and I was running people. And they said, okay, give back the money that's left and then you'll order it again next semester. And I said, why don't I just hold on to it? I'm running people. Why do I? And then I got this rant and rave about how I'm embezzling money. And I thought, really? I mean, you know that I have the money. What am I going to do, run away to Brazil with $2,000 and leave my job? And then I remembered Weinberger's Law, and I said, oh, she's embezzling money. Three years later, they arrested her. Really? Right around in handcuffs, yeah. Wow. That's good to note. Well, this is fascinating. Does it drive you crazy knowing how people think? <laughs> it drives me crazy not knowing how people think more than how people think. You don't, uh, mind, you don't mind seeing the bubbles over their head and you're reading their thoughts? What? Uh, well, I don't think I'm that great at reading thoughts. I, I, I know a little more than some people, or better yet, I have terms that other people don't have that they, you use common sense and I use special terms. I'm not sure I know anymore. I think you do. Well, thank you. What I know a little more about is unconscious processes, I think. Yeah. So what I know is that most people don't know. They say A, but they mean B, or they say one thing, but they do another. Yeah. Um, that's really what I'm interested in. Joel, in your clinical practice, based on that, what, what would be your first sort of marquee question that you might ask somebody to unearth something about their subconscious or their unconscious that they might not be aware of? What I actually do is, uh, after I say what, what brings you here and, and talk, is I don't, I listen to the themes. I'm not really listening to the content. There's always two or three, usually not even more, more than that, two or three themes that repeat themselves as they talk. Like what? Our, our minds are, uh, I'm the victim, uh, I'm the hero, uh, why doesn't everyone love me? Uh, it, but someone will say, I, I'm late because there was a traffic jam. And you know... I'm always getting stuck in traffic jams and other people seem to always leave it at the right time. I never, so I, I start to, I'm exaggerating it. But the, the no, you're are, not though. I, yeah, you're right. No one appreciates me or whatever the theme is, is what I'm listening for. And the way I get that, since, since you're asking, is our, our heads, the inside of our heads are organized associatively. They're not organized logically. They're not organized rationally. Let's imagine there's a jar. And inside the jar are 100 personality descriptions. And 90 of them are engineers and 10 of them are artists. 90, 10 engineers to artists. And I'm going to pull one out and read it randomly, okay? <laughs> Emotionally sensitive and creative. Artist, engineer. Now, you would say an artist, but it would be an engineer. Why? Because engineers create and engineers can be sensitive. You have the right answer for the wrong reason. Okay. And you have the wrong answer. I told you it was 90-10. None of you said, I'm taking the odds because you went immediately to your associative networks instead right. of to the numbers. And I repeated it. Now, it's just so you don't feel bad. I do this with statisticians and they give me artists also, uh, typically. So what you did was you said the stereotype of the artist is the guy in the big bang. I mean, of the engineers, the guy in the yeah. big bang. Yeah. And he's got to be nerdy and he has no affect and so on. It's a man mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And the engineer and the artist is, is ethereal and, and creative and therefore emotionally sensitive. 
But I said 90-10, and you would have to then believe that a, that a uh, an engineer couldn't possibly be creative or um, or emotionally sensitive, and you don't believe that. So that's harmless, artist, engineer, who cares? But if I switch it to black and white, gay and straight, man and woman, the same thing happens, except now it's not harmless. And the reason it happens is because of the associative network inside your head. So those things pop whether you like them or not. The unconscious bias you're talking about. I'm talking about why we have unconscious bias. That's right. We have unconscious bias because these, these association, associative networks live inside our head. So but what I was going to ask you about that is, do you ever recover your, uh, from your childhood? <laughs> the, the associative network is not just your childhood. It's the culture. No, but it's star- I think it does lay its ground. Well, that's how yeah. I'm thinking. The most powerful aspect of your associative network is in your childhood, which yeah. is influenced by your family and your culture. Yeah. So you're actually, you're actually so both. Do you ever recover from that childhood? But if by recover you mean totally overcome it, then no. How about 80%? What I would say instead is you learn better coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Like the coping mechanism Never, you came yeah. up with when you were six is the best you could do when you were six. Yeah. And it worked as well as it could do when you were six, but now you're 46 and you have a whole wider variety of coping mechanisms. And what I can help you do or a good therapist can help you do is realize that you don't have to cope the way you coped when you were six you have a, a wider variety of coping mechanisms right. and let's work on what they could be. Yeah. And now you have to practice them because you're still used to doing it the old way. Right. But I would say to that example of artist engineer, the cultural norms is so massively tilted in one direction that you might've learned it from your parents, but your parents learned it from the culture. It's different than other biases that are more centered around a particular family dynamic. You, yes, uh, that's that's somewhat true, except that racial bias goes back to culture. and but Racial bias, and, definitely. But take something like locus of control, the rotors work, right? I, which I think is usually relevant in the Trump world. This is like, there's some people who believe the locus of control is within them. Yeah. They control their destiny. It's mm-hmm. about luck. And then there are other people who believe the locus of control is society and, right. that, and they right. have no control. Right. I think an under leverage way of thinking about the world from a marketing point of view and other ways. But that I think is very family centric. But it's also our culture in American culture, we're independent and we make our own decisions in a communist culture. So culture plays a part as well. It does. But it does. yes, the family has its own culture. So you're, you're not wrong. But you still have now had 20 years to practice it. And it's now how you automatically think, which is another aspect of psychology, that if you practice thinking a certain way long enough, it becomes automatic and kind of locked in. So changing it becomes hard. That's why I hesitated to answer your question, Faith. Not so easy, because if you practice doing it one way for 35 years, and now you realize it's not a, an adaptive way, it doesn't go away. You, you know? never you uh, never survive your childhood. You, like you say, can adapt around it. Yeah. Think of solutions, blah, blah, blah. But the damage, if there's damage, is I agree. there. There. You know, it's it's interesting you say that. I, I think about as a parent, I used to joke that one of your real jobs is to teach your children how to cope with how they are. I think that as a parent, that's part of what you recognize with your children. I think that's the job. I think you put, uh, I have two kids and I, I try, I'm not always successful, to think of my job as figuring out who they are and helping them be that. 
Yes. As opposed to you, you need to be an intellectual and read a lot of books and, and become a psychologist. That may be them. That may not be them. Who are they? And how can I help them be that? Right. Uh, hopefully they don't want to be serial killers, but um, on that assumption. My that daughter is- asked me the other day, she's 16. I was just saying, would you rather be blind? You know, that game or, or blind or, yeah. or deaf or, you know, she said, would you rather be born again or keep living from now? My first answer was going to be, I'd rather be born again. But then I thought that's a little insulting to my children because, you know, so I didn't say that. But that's some question from a 16-year-old. Yeah, some question from a 16-year-old. I, I would have to think about it because I, my first reaction is when I'm born again, do I remember it? Because I'm No, you don't. She said you don't remember anything. Well, getting back to Joel's two kinds, two theories of evolution, the people who want to, who are the good ones and want to bring up their children are the ones who truly care, the ones who just care about proliferation of their DNA or less motivated by positive impact on the world. Selfless versus selfish, you could, I mean, it's Richard Dawkins, you could argue is what separates people. You said everybody was pretty much selfish. Yeah, even people that are saving the world, you know, want the book written about the most people. I mean, Freud said it was all sex and aggression, so we're done. Right. And that everything else flows from that positive and negative. Isn't that... uh, you know, feeling like recognition being important. But it's it's an offshoot of, of mm-hmm. sex and aggression still. You you bring, like, if, I, if I'm a surgeon, it's not because I want to save lives, because I like cutting people open and being covered in blood. And I found a, a way that society smiles on me for doing that and pays me a lot of money. But my real jolly is I'm cutting you open and I'm having aggression. Maybe I get some thrill out of it, too. And do women have as much as men? Yes. According to Freud, yes. It's just expressed differently. It can be displaced and put onto another group, another person. It can be projected. It can be denied. It can be, end up being somaticized, turned against yourself. All kinds of things can happen. But yes, sex and aggression, according to Freud, I'm not saying I'd buy Freud 100%, but when people say, well, it's not true, I say, tell me what movies you watched recently and right. what books you've read. And lo and behold... You are so brilliant. I just had the best time talking to you. I enjoyed it too. Fascinating. And, uh, thank you thank so much. You. Thank you for having me. Thank so you, Joel. See you soon. Bye, okay. Joel. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank no. you. Bye bye. Thank you. What'd you think, Maggie? It was interesting to me that he was willing to really give opinions. I feel like often when I talk to people in his field, and of course I'm doing associative thinking, just like he talked about, that there's not as much black and white in the conversation, a whole lot more gray. So I, I found that wonderful, actually, to really get his insight and his his real thoughts. Yeah, he was unguarded. He just kind yeah. of- oh, yeah. yeah, so natural. Yes. Do, do you know anybody that ever went to him for therapy? I do know some people, yes. Did they like it? Yes, everybody loved him. I think you could love him. You could really trust him. I agree. He's so non-judgy, you know? Yeah. Yes. And he has a sense of humor and he's self-deprecating and... Yeah, he's lovely. He's shareable. You can share your content with him to use a metaphor. 